Temp check. What kind of summer are we having this year? A family road trip summer? A beach bum summer? Or a wake me up when the sun sets summer? With Instacart, choose your own adventure and skip the shopping side quests. Where available, you can get ice cream delivered to your hotel, sunscreen to the pool, or cold brew to your bed. Well, door. In as fast as 30 minutes. Wherever you find yourself this summer, you can get the goods. Download Instacart for free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum $10 per order. Excludes restaurants. Additional terms and fees apply. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. Do you buy into this argument that the Middle East is now less important to the United States because we are net oil exporters? So I think from an energy perspective, that is true. I think as we look in the future and see the competition with China, the Middle East strikes me as playing a more important role. I worry sometimes that we're getting into a position where we're creating, you know, an axis of enemies. So we'll sanction Russia or China or Iran or Syria. And if the Middle East falls out of favor, they are likely to partner up. And if the United States retrenches and pulls back from some of these areas, we create a vacuum. And so what we think is good policy now, because it's not in our national security or economic interest, may down the, down the road come back to bite us a bit. Frank Verastro, for the last 20 years, has served in various senior roles at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, all related to energy and national security. His government service has included positions in the White House and at the Departments of Interior and Energy. In the private sector, he has worked for some of the largest oil and oil-related companies. He has written extensively on energy policy, oil and gas markets, and security topics. We just sat down with Frank to talk about all things energy. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Frank, welcome to Intelligence Matters. We've been wanting to have an expert on energy on the show for some time, and um, I think we're very lucky to have you, so thank you for joining us. Michael, my pleasure. Happy to join you. I'd like to start by asking about a handful of current issues and then move to some more strategic ones, if that's okay. The first the first one I want to ask about is the pandemic, the economic recovery, at least in the West, from it, and the energy needed to fuel that recovery. Are there issues here that we need to be mindful of and that need the attention of governments and and companies? Yeah, absolutely, Michael. That is the single biggest uh, energy issue. It's the dilemma about how we come out of the post-COVID cycle and go into economic recovery and at the same time transition to a new energy form while still ensuring reliable and affordable energy to everyone that needs it. And I think that's the dilemma that everyone from the United States to China to Russia, the Middle East is facing right now. Um, BP just put out a a statistical report which showed that the global retrenchment was three and a half to four percent last year. It's the largest peacetime recession we've seen since the Great Depression. Mm. And energy demand dropped almost five percent. So there was an obvious reshuffling of energy forms, oil, gas, coal, renewables. But fossil fuels continue to make up 80% of the global energy mix, which is a challenge as we move to decarbonize for climate change. And 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 as countries start recovering, are we seeing are we seeing shortages of energy the same way we're seeing shortages of other products or not so much? So not so much, but it's a timing issue, right? So the good news is that carbon emissions dropped last year by like 6%. Um, But the bad news is that as we grow and as we grow fast, you're going to use the energy forms that your system allows. So you go back to, uh, remember Don Rumsfeld, we go to war with the army we have. So we go to uh, our energy usage, which the fuels that are available. So oil right now, OPEC has worked off much of the global surplus. Um, They were successful in that regard. And in fact, at this current time, depending on your forecast for demand, it looks like the next quarter oil is going to be tight. So over the weekend, they resolved the dispute about how they were going to put more oil on the market. But there's still concern about the COVID variants. And does demand go away? There's concern about how fast Iran comes on. Um, uh, you know, what about Libya? What about Nigeria? So we're we're not out of the woods yet, but it it's a tighter balance for sure. But we're almost at the end of the driving season as well. So, and and there's there's real economic differences around the world, right? There's countries that are recovering, and there's countries that are still struggling, right? Pe- countries yeah. still in the deep throes of COVID. Is that affecting energy flows in any? significant way. So it is absolutely. Um, uh, East of the Suez is still kind of blowing and going. Um, Europe seems to have slowed down with the new Delta variant. Uh, Transportation, especially uh, airline fuels, is still off. Diesel fuel is off. 
gasoline is up in the United States because the economy is doing better. People are off for the summer. So there's seasonal variations. And the, uh, as you said, the pace of recovery around the world is very, very uneven. Frank, another issue which you've already mentioned is Iran. I want to ask about Iran and the nuclear negotiations. I'm assuming, love your view, but I'm assuming that there will be a deal between Iran and the international community that brings Iran back into some form of a nuclear agreement with the West. And I'm wondering what would be the impact on energy markets of Iran's ability to, again, freely sell as much oil as it can? So I totally agree with your assessment. I think that's where we're headed. And I think the Biden administration made clear that uh, getting back to the GCPOA is something that they were intent upon doing. Um, the question is the timing, right? So with the new election in, in Iran, uh, it looks like the next round of negotiations won't be until August, which means even if sanctions are removed or relieved, you're not going to see substantial new supplies on the market until the third and fourth quarter, um, which actually makes the OPEC decision somewhat problematic for Iran because the agreement they cut over the weekend was to gradually uh, relieve the world of the, the supply shortage that we currently have um, or the tight balance in the market. So they're putting extra oil on the market to the tune of 400,000 barrels of oil a day starting next month and every month thereafter. So Iran right now is producing two and a half million barrels a day. They have the capacity for about 3.8. How they try to put that additional oil on the market and where they send it, does it go to China? Does it go to, to Southeast Asia? Is going to be a real issue. Would we see would we see them put that oil on the market and other countries not react and see the price fall? Or would we see somebody like Saudi Arabia take some oil off the market to, to allow Iran some room? So if you're a buyer at this point, you've actually probably been buying distressed cargoes out of Iran because they have still been exporting, right. um, but they've been exporting it at below market prices. Uh, and that's what makes it attractive, the risk and the reward for doing that. The Saudis at this point, uh, OPEC did not actually go into the notion of how we accommodate Iran. And I'm not sure that there's a a strong feeling in the group that they have to accommodate Iran for an additional million barrels of oil a day, unless there's a huge supply crunch. But obviously, if that were to happen, there would have to be a cutback somewhere or you'd see a, a price adjustment. And how much of a price adjustment are you talking about for another you know, million and a half barrels a day, do you think? Well, so it depends when it comes. The, the first yeah. quarter is traditionally a low demand quarter, and we build up demand through the year. So as, as demand moves through the rest of 2021, the, if the recovery is there and COVID doesn't set us back, that there's a good chance that additional supplies would be welcomed in the market and moderate prices into the 60s. If Iran is allowed to put all of their additional oil on the market and demand is not there, that would, I think, instigate a, another price collapse. And OPEC would have to meet and decide what to do towards the end of the year, whether they would prorate adjustments and cutbacks and the precipitous price decline, if we had that, would affect U.S. producers as well, who are now just starting to increase rig counts because we had $75 oil as recently yeah. as last week. 
Yeah. So Frank, the third third issue I want to talk about, ask you about is ransomware attacks. As you know, we've seen a spike in such attacks, um, including on energy infrastructure. As you know, we just saw, for example, a ransomware attack that significantly affected gasoline supply in the eastern part of the United States. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, are energy companies becoming a particular target for ransomware attacks? Are they targets for the Chinese and Russians as they think about what they might want to attack if we ever got into a hot war with them? How do you think about all of that? So those are terrific questions. On uh, Our colleague at CSIS, Jim Lewis, just testified on ransomware uh, in the Senate. And you talked about the Colonial Pipeline attack. And, and the good news on Colonial was that the oil is fungible. Uh, it can move in tankers and trucks uh, by barges, alternate pipelines, rail. So the supply disruption wasn't as bad as it looked to be because people put the gasoline that should have been at secondary storage and gas stations in their tanks and carry it around and fill their tanks. So there's a lot of panic buying, including in states that did not have a disruption, by the way. But you're right. And and those kind of cyber attacks can go to nuclear facilities. They can go to electrical grids where uh, replacement is not as easily because we don't have as much redundancy in some cases. But, you know, Jim's point when he, he testified was that ransomware um, and these attacks, this is a business yeah. It's a business activity that rigorously researches its targets and attacks obvious vulnerabilities. Um, the solution, and we talked a little bit about this, uh, at the first order is really better what we call cyber hygiene yeah. practices. So it's more secure program coding, uh, better encryption, uh, multi-factor authentication that reduces the opportunities to get into the system, but not everyone does that. And I think businesses have been a little bit lax in that regard. So Biden's executive order working with businesses and especially energy and critical infrastructure should help that. But at the end of the day, especially in the case of ransomware, it's it's the Kremlin. So the conversation that Biden had with uh, President Putin if the Russians allow this to continue, there's got to be some form of retaliation by the United States um, just to show we have the capability, but then rules of the road going forward. And you're right. It's not just Russia. It's China. It's other countries as well, Iran. So it's going to be an ongoing problem. So so I'm wondering if, if these cyber criminals specifically target critical infrastructure because they believe that infrastructure being so important, the companies are more likely to pay. I, I, I just don't know. Do you have a sense? So, I, th- And that's the two-edged sword, right? So the companies that are involved want to get operations back to normal as quickly as possible. On the other side of that, the public and government outrage is more likely to draw some kind of a retaliatory action if this continues. And the cyber criminals need to balance that is what you're saying. Exactly. I, I think so. Right. So, I mean, you can play the game and see how far you can push it. Profitable venture. But if you draw too much fire and direction, what's the downside? It's a risk reward game. 
And the country that's hosting you, I would think that if you don't have coverage, say in Moscow, um, uh, political cover, then you're exposed. And at that point, it gets just too risky to do. So what happened in the in the colonial pipeline? Did the did the hack itself um, shut down operations or was that a business decision that followed the hack? I, I was never clear on that. So Colonial maintained that they never actually got into operating systems. The concern was that they could have infiltrated. And so they manually shut down a lot of the systems and turned it off. Now, the problem with that, good news, bad news, is, is by turning it off, you minimize the damage. But with big pipeline systems, you don't just turn them right back on again. Right. So it took a while to see um, if there was any damage, where the gaps were, and how to fill in the secondary storage to keep continuous supply going until you get the pipeline up and running. And the interesting thing was, as a result of the pipeline not moving any oil, crude oil prices in Louisiana and Texas dropped because it had nowhere to go, while gasoline prices, product prices on the East Coast went up. So it's not like we were short of the raw material. It was a question of the logistics of moving it from point A to point B. Frank, the last sort of current issue I want to ask you about is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which has gotten a lot of attention. German Chancellor Merkel just had her final meeting as chancellor with President Biden. And as you know, they're on opposite sides of this pipeline issue. And I was wondering if you could explain to our listeners what the issue is and why it matters. So Nord Stream 2, in, in my mind, on a commercial, I'll let me take the commercial side first. It, it strikes me that neither the Obama administration, the Trump administration, nor the Biden administration were going to able to successfully stop pipeline construction that had been ongoing. It's an $11 billion gas project that pipes natural gas from Russia. Nord Stream 2 went through an alternative route from Nord Stream 1. So it's not like additional gas supply is going to Germany. But the Germans felt that it was a secure source of energy and they rely on Russian gas for like 80% of their gas needs. Um, The concern in the EU and in the United States from a geopolitical sense was that that Germany and possibly Europe was getting overly reliant on Russian pipeline gas, and that secondarily, or maybe primary, depending on where you live, that Nord Stream 2 would circumvent Ukraine. And could that be used as a lever for the Russians to do more damage to Ukraine without any retribution? Um, We've seen disruptions in Ukraine, though, going back 15 years. And the solution to that problem really is... uh, different connections, uh, additional storage, possibly LNG facilities, new feeder lines, instead of solely relying on Russia. None of that has seemed to happen. I think the bigger concern for the Russians at this point is not so much the turned on by EU or the US pressure, but when you look out 10 or 20 years, uh, the European Union now wants to reduce reliance on natural gas and increase uh, markedly the use of renewables and their gas consumption has been flat or declining for years. And if you're Russia, you either, you know, ship it to China, which is a long way to go, 
right. um, to get to the eastern provinces or or ship it to Europe or make it into LNG, um, which is a little bit more costly. So uh, Russia's got an issue where, where uh, there's Ed Chow, who you know, Ed Chow is also a colleague at CSIS. And, and Ed basically says his test for pipelines is if, if it's a bankable project and the buyers and sellers are willing to do it, it generally gets done. And I think that was the case. So there's a lot of political rhetoric around it for different reasons. Some Republicans say, you know, stop Russia, export more U.S. LNG. That really hasn't happened. Um, and there's been an opportunity to do that. So I think, you know, Europe is connected by pipelines to Russia. Russia needs to sell the gas. Germany wanted the gas. That deal was consummated in the bigger scheme of things. I, I think there's a lot more political hay that's being made out of this without a lot of substance and fire below it. Is the, is the Ukraine risk that if there's a second pipeline that Russia could cut gas to Ukraine without cutting gas to Europe and therefore it yes. makes Ukraine more vulnerable. Is that the idea? That's, that's absolutely um, the issue. And then there's transit fees for other countries that, that would have benefited from having a pipeline uh, across their area. Uh, in the case of Ukraine, I think the Europeans added a condition to Nord Stream 2 that if there's any action taken that is targeted at Ukraine, that supplies and purchases would be cut. Now, I'm not sure what uh, Chancellor Merkel feels strongly about uh, how she's going to deal with that. But so far, she's welcomed the pipeline uh, investment and construction. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. And we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Frank. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Frank, I want to get a little bit more strategic here. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the Arab oil embargo, when the world sort of woke up to the economic and national security importance of energy and the energy trade. And I'm wondering from, say, a 50,000 foot level, if you can talk a bit about how the link between energy and national security has evolved over the past 50 years and sort of where you think we are today on that link and where we might be headed. I know that's a kind of a broad question. So, so uh, it is a broad question, but I actually cut my teeth on the, the early days of the embargo. Um, I bet I you come, did. <laughs> well, I come to Washington out of college to go to medical school. And over the summer, we were already having shortages because of the Nixon price controls. Um, I had known enough chemistry that I could read refinery flow charts. And my first job was in the oil and gas office in the interior department, uh, allocating oil and gas at the ripe mm. age of 22. Um, the embargo 
gave President Nixon, President Ford, subsequent presidents, a sense of the vulnerability. U.S. demand was going up and production was going down. So Carter, for one, introduced the decontrol, which increased U.S. production. The IEA was established as a result of this. The SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, was established all to enhance our energy security. I think the single largest contributor to enhanced security for the United States, though, was the shale revolution, the unconventionals. Once we found that we could access source rock with no geologic risk, U.S. production went from 6 million barrels a day to 13 million barrels a day. And we went from a net petroleum importer to a net exporter, which was just phenomenal in the space of less than 10 years. And is that um, primarily, and I'm sorry to interrupt, is that primarily technology driven? That, so that's it, something, it was technolo- yeah. technology and price, right? Okay. So we always knew that the source rock was there because that's where the molecules eventually came from and worked their way to the surface. But the ability to go into these formations and frack it and increase the flows uh, just exponentially increased the success rate as well as the economics for getting both first gas because the molecules are smaller and later for light oil. And that turned the United States totally around and put us in a different perspective and a position with respect to certainly oil and gas. With the increase in investment in renewables, um, our electric grid is now switching and gas was one of the reasons that we're able to get off coal gas and the fact that solar and wind, the price came down. So our emissions have also gone down, but we're in a new phase now where the focus on uh, emissions and natural gas is methane. So CO2 emissions have to be dealt with um, has changed. So we've moved from energy shortage to energy surplus to now this new area. And and I guess that's one of the points I'd like to make that totally support the Biden proposal, uh, worked on his energy plan and his climate plan in 2019. But the notion and the sequence of how we get there, 2030, 2050, I think oil and gas is going to be around for decades. We just have to manage it. And as we move the decarbonization along, increase investment in technology, in renewables, electrify the grid, and make it resilient so that we can make this transition. For countries in the Middle East, I think this is the other side of it. So Saudi Arabia recognizes that at some point, uh, the world's not going to need as much oil as they have. I think it was Sheikh Yamani that that said, you know, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of rocks and uh, oil will be depleted uh, long after we need it. Um or will the need for it will go away before the resources depleted. So uh, Vision 2030 was to diversify the Saudi economy. They've done that a little bit. The price fluctuations over the last five years have made things more difficult because it restricted revenues. But you see it in the UAE, you see it in Qatar. Um, countries are moving in that direction. The question is, if we don't do this right, Do we put ourselves in a position for as long as we need oil? You take it away from the United States or Norway or Canada, and and the world relies on producers in Russia and the Middle East to provide that resource. We still have 250 million cars in this country that run on gasoline, and they're not going away anytime soon. So we have to be smart about how we do this. 
So Frank, do you do you buy into this argument that the Middle East is now less important to the United States because we are net oil exporters or not? So I think from an energy perspective, that is true. Um, I think as we look in the future and see the competition with China, the Middle East strikes me as playing a more important role. In the Obama administration, they talked about the pivot to Asia. It wasn't to leave the Middle East behind, but there's a recognition, and this is where geopolitical alliances can also change. I worry sometimes that we're getting into a position where we're creating, you know, an axis of enemies. So we'll sanction Russia for all for good reason, Russia or China or Iran or Syria. And if the Middle East falls out of favor, they are likely to partner up. China still needs energy. We've seen the investment they've made in Africa, in Venezuela, and in the Middle East. And if the United States retrenches and pulls back from some of these areas, we create a vacuum. And so what we think is good policy now, because it's not in our national security or economic interest, may down the, down the road come back to bite us a bit. And in fact, we saw a deal um, some months ago, right, between China and Iran. Um, Absolutely. With both countries trying to do exactly what you're talking about. Well, and it's the same with Russia, right? So the pivot to be able to um, uh, undermine the position of the United States while enhancing and providing economic benefit to these countries, they're realizing it's not a, a net sum game, that they'll be allies in certain times, they'll be competitors at other times. Um and that's, I think, the world we're in. You know, John Kerry was talking about on the climate piece, how even with China's horrible human rights record and cybersecurity issues and the South China Sea and the aggression, we still need them on climate change. And he talked about being able to compartmentalize our foreign policy. That's easier said than done. Yeah. And I think the same uh, will be true with Russia. So you mentioned you mentioned Venezuela, and I think Venezuela, correct me if I'm wrong, has some of the largest oil reserves on the planet, and obviously oil production there has has plummeted um, along with the rest of the economy. If Venezuela ever got its act together, how big a player could they be, and how long would it would it take um, to get oil production back up, and what would that impact be? So under normal circumstances, when I was with Pennzoil, uh, we actually were in Maracaibo. So if you look at the resource potential of Venezuela, it's heavy oil. It's very heavy oil. So it's expensive. Uh, it's not uh, environmentally desirable. If the world needed oil, that would be a large resource area could, to go to. I almost think that they've missed the curve on this now. As the world switches to decarbonization, um, lower carbon fuels, less oil, Venezuela production is probably one of the least attractive. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with more Intelligence Matters. I'm Micah Morrell. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, 
There's joy in every journey. So Frank, really two more issues I want to talk to you about. The first, the first climate change, which you've already, you've already raised. You've worked in the government. You've worked in the oil industry. Just wonder how you think about the role of CO2 emissions play in the warming of the planet. Just put that out there. So, I, I mean, the science is pretty clear on this. <laughs> when you look at the time and post-industrial world, um, emissions have risen uh, through development. So good things for the world. We provided more energy. We just haven't done it with the focus of, of, of limiting emissions. And now we're into that phase um, to keep global temperatures between one and a half and two degrees uh, centigrade. The IEA just put out a study with a, a path, not the path, but a pathway forward. And if you look at the change that has to be made over the next 30 years, uh, you know, the, some of the changes that people are proposing for 2030, it's to preserve your options to stay along the arc of the pathway so you don't totally blow yourself out of the water. And then you'll need new technology and new investments. But to get there even by mid-century is a huge huge challenge. Um, we talked about the number of cars that the United States has right, right now. Um, to go to electric vehicles, you would need to modernize the entire grid so that everyone could charge their vehicle. And if you think about uh, worse climatic situations with storms or hurricanes, just imagine a situation where everyone's trying to get out of Louisiana um, in their electric car and there's no power on the grid or the fires that we've seen in California. I mean, there's ample evidence that shows us we have to move on this quickly. Uh, my concern is on the sequence and doing it smartly um, to make sure that we're still resilient. Where are we on renewables as a significant alternative in terms of their cost and availability, et cetera, et cetera? So solar and, and wind have grown exponentially over the last several years. They still globally make up, I want to say, 8% each of, of the energy mix. So fossil fuels make up around 80 in terms of primary consumption and nuclear, uh, hydro, wind, and solar make up the rest. But that's in the low 20s combined. So when you look at the change, the scale of change that has to occur, um, it's significant. And as you talked about how individual countries have certain resources that they can use, if you have a lot of hydro, that's great. If you don't, that's not all that good. Um, uh, solar and wind, I think the applications can go almost anywhere, but then you have to provide the grid. There's still a debate whether in this country you want to build out a big grid so that you can wield the electricity because the electrons don't distinguish what they're made from once you create the electrons, so you can just move them. Or you want um, oh, energy that's closer to home, right? So that the people in localities, if something happens on the grid, not everyone is affected or you have a backup system. So you have to balance uh, the pricing with resiliency, uh, the interruptibility of supply, and then you have cyber threats. 
But then the cost of infrastructure to do this, and this is what I think President Biden is trying to do in the infrastructure bill and in the the supplemental reconciliation bill, is to add a lot more infrastructure to update the U.S. system. I mean, this is like a once in a generation reinvestment in America that we really need to do. And it's beyond just bridges and roads. You know, it's it's 5G, it's the electrical system, um, it's medical supplies, it's food delivery. And I think the pandemic has shown us, and this is one of the challenges where what was in vogue a decade ago, you know, just in time inventory building and rely on the global marketplace. People are rethinking that. Do we need to have stockpiles in individual countries? Do we really want to be reliant on other partners in the world if you want new secure supply chains? And China has looked at a lot of the materials that we need for renewables, Um how do we go about getting that? How fast can you build a system? And even in the case of solar, where uh, China produces, I want to say 80% of the, the silicates that are used in solar arrays mm-hmm. that are marketable around the world, because of their activity in other areas, human rights and other things, we're looking to put tariffs on some of those imports into the United States, which for utilities that were looking to buy solar, how fast does that allow them to expand their system or or does it retard the ability to get to higher renewable rates? And when you look again, coming out of post-COVID, uh, in a post-COVID situation, the cost of steel has like tripled uh, the cost of most manufactured goods and transportation of those goods to delivery. The delivery times are longer, costs are up. What does that do in terms of keeping things competitive? Frank, so I'm just wondering about sort of the the pace of change with regard to carbon usage in the West, the United States and the West, and in China. Is there's a is there a significant difference there? Is there a divergence there at the speed at which we're going, or is it pretty much the same? So I think we talked a little bit earlier. So China's trying to balance the need for economic recovery with climate change. Um, President Xi put out uh, an ambitious promise for green growth and a new surge in hydro and solar and wind and calls for robust emissions, including a trading scheme, but the details are still sketchy. And coal mining in China is still huge and it's a big employer. China's emissions are 28%, if you look at 2019 numbers, 28% of the global output. And that's roughly equal to the US, the EU, and India put together. Mm. So when you look at the population and you look at the potential for increasing and modernizing, it's certainly there because it's a state-controlled industries. Uh, if the government dictates it, you can get that done less easy in in societies where businesses are freer to do stuff. So you have to use a regulatory and legislative hand as well as price incentives. But the uh, the emissions track that the IEA looked for, the commitments, I will see this fall um, in Glasgow when COP26 occurs, all the countries are supposed to come to the table with the increased ambition because they realize that the timeline on, on doing something about climate is much more compressed than they thought it was even five years ago. 
but translating those into workable plans and putting them into action is is a huge challenge um, just because of the scale and the diversity of the countries that are coming into four. Frank, let me ask you uh, one more question. Um, I heard somebody say the other day that the, the long-term price of oil is effectively zero. This sort of goes back to your Stone Age point, right? It, 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 is, is that how you see it? So I, at this point, um, until we find other substitutes, there was an interesting analysis that I saw at a UT that talked about the electric car, you know, and people think that just changing out the gas powered engine with an electric uh, vehicle means you don't need petroleum and 50% of the parts in the car from plastics uh, for the headlights or the seats or the steering column uh, or polyurethane, all the polymers, things that made the cars lighter and increased fuel efficiency largely came out of oil and gas. Mm. So you would have to find a substitute for that, no matter what kind of car you drive. Uh, polymers are in medicines and foodstuffs. Uh, the oil industry put out a report about uh, what they contributed to protective gear, PPEs, and how much petroleum-based product goes into that kind of material. So the thought of not using any oil product at all, I find difficult. There's cleaner ways to do it, and there's probably synthetic substitutes that you could use that might be more expensive. In the next 20 years, I think we'll still be using oil and gas. I hope it's significantly less because we need to do that. But the pace and timing are just important. I I would think by mid-century, you can get a handle on this different states and different countries now are trying to impose all new automobiles, you know, post 2035 or 2040 will be electric, but that's new. And then you factor in the issue of uh, uh, equity, uh, social equity, Uh, maybe affluent people can afford to buy a new car and get no trade in value for their old one. Poorer people might so much. So it's, it's a question of how much the government helps and sticks and carrots in Western society is what we use as opposed to mandates. But that's not out of the question either. Yeah. Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it was great to have you. Michael, it's been a pleasure. That was Frank Verastro. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ashley Armstrong. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. 
and you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital edition wherever you get your books.